What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers, episode 135. I am one of your hosts, George Tarrant, who is coming from hell. It is, uh, it, my house has been replaced with a house-looking oven. It is horrible here. I hate it. It is horrible, horrible, horrible. But the thing that is not horrible is my co-host, the man, the myth, the genuine body counter, the authentic body counter, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am fine and dandy. I would not take any credit about being a member of Body Count because <laughs> Ice T will hunt me down and he will kill me. Do not mess with Ice. Dude, we need the p- publicity. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, yeah. Not at my expense. No, I I, I I've seen Body Count in, in front of you. You don't mess with Ice T. It's, um, it's, you you are the talent. We can't lose the talent. It, well, that's this is true, but also, you know, I'd I'd rather not, you know. Uh, die at the hands of a drive-by or something. Um, you know, I, I just he strikes me the kind of guy you don't want to mess with. You make a fair point. It is I think up to five or six days now here in Melbourne, Australia, with mm-hmm. temperatures over thirty. Um, yep. which for those of you using, you know, um, hogsheads to the gallon and you, know, uh, <laughs> Freedom Eagles per liter. Um, it is 86 uh, in your antiquated and, you know, non-functional scale. It's just stupid. That's what it is. Um, so, and that's kind of weird because, like, there's been no over 40 days here, which we are known for occasionally in summer. So, again, for three eagles per meter, that's um, 104. over Temperature's over 100. Not uncommon. We haven't had one of those. They've all been in that sort of realm of 30 to 35. And, uh, you know, that's kind of nuts if you um, live somewhere unfortunate enough not to have air conditioning. Um, there's a reason I insist on it wherever I live. I am too old uh, to actually fuck around with just a fan these days, you know. Yeah. Um, I, it's a must. Not cut it. It does not. But... It's better than nothing, but like, um, you know, climate change is coming for us all. So uh, I am going to, you know, if I have to sleep in the living room under the air conditioner, I will. So noticeably, a neighbor on about level four of my apartment building was complaining on the building's Facebook group that my apartment's air conditioner was dripping water on her balcony, um, yeah. which um, was quite a quite a quite a feat, I thought, considering. Have you ever stood? I mean, can you imagine standing on level four? So her balcony sticks out a little bit further than mm. all the other ones above it. She's mm. got a bigger one, and standing on that balcony on level four and looking up at something dripping above and going, "Ha ha, that's level fifteen in apartment fifteen." Blah 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 blah. Um, you know, <laughs> and you know, you can actually you can, you can magically tell what apartment that water is dripping from because you know. It's such an easy thing to see. Little do you know that the uh, person in apartment, well, in on level four, is actually Sheila Holmes. I, I'm sure she's eliminated all logical possibilities and illogical, however improbable, is invariably true. Um, but the other thing she's also somehow managed to mentally work her way through is there are between me and her, you know, eleven levels or so. Funny mm. enough, what they have on those 11 levels is something I like to call apartments. And they all have air conditioners of the same make and model, generally speaking, as I do. And you know what? They all produce water. 
Um, and so all you got to do is like, I came back on, on Monday having spent the weekend somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you look over there for when I, before I even turned the air conditioner on because it was freaking hot in here. I looked mm-hmm. over the balcony and her, <laughs> her balcony, her balcony was like half soaked. And all I could see was balconies below me dripping water on top of it. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, I don't understand the people in this building, but people in this building are the biggest busy bodies I've ever met in my life. I, I was half expecting you to say you looked over the balcony and you just saw her looking up at you going, <laughs> waka, waka, waka. <laughs> um, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised. If, if, but um, yeah, I woke up this morning and I looked on that side and her balcony was literally drenched with water. It was like soaked. Uh, and I didn't leave the air conditioner on all night. So it wasn't, wasn't my evil doing. Um, so citing the others to do it though that's that's the truth of it it is it's a it's a, it's a cunning conspiracy yeah. to you know get well, back I'm... at her for having twice the balcony space that i do um it's it's you know they say revenge is a dish, dish best served cold i say it's best served wet mm. or dutch oven in the elevator well um yes i i don't know who this person is though so um it's, fortunately, yeah. and i don't really want to announce my presence as being the evil person in this particular apartment who's complained about that's true yeah because my my neighbor whiny mcgee as i call him uh if you speak above a whisper in the living room he complains you're blasting his bedroom so apartment living ladies and gentlemen this is what we signed up for um so you know he has no air conditioning i have shitty neighbors uh what has the world come to (laughs) first world problems ladies and gentlemen (laughs) um compared to you know um, um, the life in the Ukraine right now, I think I would take a hot apartment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I think we're, we're not too bad, but uh, damn it, I'm British and I can complain with the best of them. Yes, 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 quite, quite, quite. And you should note also it is Invasion Day in Australia. Mm-hmm. Thanks to you, uh, personally. Yeah, um, I, I do take it all on <laughs> responsibility for all of the crimes of a British empire for the last 500 years. I have apologized for the death of Jesus Christ on more than enough occasions. I do still need to apologize for invasion day, uh, for everything that happened in India. Take Harry Styles, gonna, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a lot. There's so Edward, you know, Simon Cow. Don't just don't, just don't. If if you start me on that, it will just be two hours of apology, and that would not even break the surface. In so. fairness, I think the death of Christ might be the one thing there that the British Empire just didn't have their finger in that pie. But you know, you never know. Well, you know, the British Empire was essentially derived from the Roman um, society, and the Romans are the ones that did it. So you know, genetically, it's still out. <laughs> it's a stretch, but it's there. Um, <laughs> So uh, we have, a, I think, we've, I feel like we said last week we had a lighter show, and um, we didn't. Um, uh, I I feel like again we have a lighter show this week, at least from my perspective. Agreed. Um, but um, we'll see how we go in the long run. Uh, last week we actually went over two hours with a lighter show. <laughs> but yeah, we've got our chain movie of the week, which I picked. It's Ethan Hawke's first movie, the Joe Dante directed 1985 classic um explorers um we'll talk about more of uh, peacemaker and are you up to date on book of boba fett no i haven't watched that for a couple of episodes 
we'll we'll leave book uh boba for now um you talked about the australian movie the merger um and you've got some more thoughts on yellow jacket and i watched the new newest guy Ritchie movie wrath of man as well as hate myself for some reason and watched uh monster hunter looking <laughs> forward to that one yeah <laughs> um very much looking should, should we start should we start with the, what we should probably do most weeks and but we never do um <laughs> but start with the chain movie let's start with the explorers so i'm gonna do this straight away the explorers is a boy obsessed with 50s sci-fi movies about aliens has a recurring dream about a blueprint of some kind which he draws for his inventor friend with the help of a third kid they follow it and build themselves a spaceship now what Ooh. Um, now, I remember, this is a, well, I, this is a childhood favourite of yours, I believe, yes? Uh, oh, this is my, one of my brother's particular favourites. I have a soft spot for this one. I do really enjoy it. Um, but uh, it was definitely more my brother's favourite out of the two of us, for sure. I, he's a little older than you, right? Yeah, four years. So, um, which is about how much older than you I am. So, I'm mm -hmm. um, of your brother's vintage, I suspect. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I agree with your brother. This was actually, uh, was I mean, it was certainly a beloved one that I remember very, very fondly. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, I keep talking about this as like, for younger people who don't understand, being able to see movies you love wasn't particularly an easy thing in the mid 80s. If you didn't have, if your dad didn't dab it like my dad, allegedly, I don't know what the statute of limitations is on copyright, <laughs> but like allegedly, copied, Travis will be known as Gloria Wiss. <laughs> that allegedly dubbed the tapes onto, you know, a, a blank tape and you'd have a copy at home because they didn't sell the copies of the movies. They couldn't, no. they couldn't go out and buy a copy of Explorers if you wanted a copy. Um, it was so, that rare moment of sort of like the when the Disney movie came to VHS, it was like, oh my god, you got to get it now because they just they will literally just stop making them because now it's we can't escape these things. So it was yeah, a different it, time. at one time they were kind of collectible almost. It yeah, was, it, yeah. And I've said it before; it was a big deal when a new Disney animation landed, that kind of thing. So mm. I didn't have this as a copy at home. Um, we. Yeah, had a lot of we had we had Labyrinth, we had the Neverending Story, but we didn't have Explorers. But I remember seeing it um, when it came out, or I guess when it came out on VHS, at least here in Australia, and it just kind of blew my mind as a kid of what, about eight or nine at the time. The idea of being able to build your own spaceship with just stuff you had lying around your house with your friends and being able to go into space somehow is a is an amazing idea. Mm. Um, uh, and so it really sparked the, my young imagination at the time. Well, that that's kind of this movie in a nutshell, really. It is so optimistic. Every, every element about it is just so delightfully optimistic. Even um, one of uh, Joe Dante's regulars, uh, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? The old man, the guy uh, from the guy from Gremlins, Miller, Derek, Derek, Eric yes. Miller, David Miller. Uh, uh, yeah, I think I think it's him. But he's uh, usually the the kind of old curmudgeon, and in this there is definitely that. But he, even he has that moment where he's sort of like talking with one of his friends on the phone. He's like, I haven't had dreams like this since I was a kid, 
And it's like, okay, he's, there's, there's still that little spark of optimism in him, all of them. And honestly, some of the shit that poor um, Darren, uh, Jason Preeson's family, the little tidbits of what goes on at home, is it like, well, it doesn't sound like the nicest of upbringings for a kid. But it's still kind of like that optimistic mid-80s hope and joy. And it's a kind of genre of movie that we just don't really get anymore. I guess you don't get it at children's films like this anymore, period. Dick Miller was the actor's name, by the way. Thank you. Played Thank Charlie Drake. Yes. Um, I found myself sort of reflecting on the, the period the film was made. Um so 80, it was released in 85, so I don't exactly know when filming. 84, 85, it's probably mm-hmm. that time. It was a very particular time in, in the United States, a time of, we noted, a large degree of optimism. You know, this was the middle of the Reagan years, and despite the fact that that, was a, that guy was a gold medal A-grade cunt, um, that, like, they, they liked him for some reason. The guy got re-elected in 84 and... An, a historical landslide. Um, yeah. So um, there was a great deal of um, optimism about the world. I mean, I can't remember the Challenger disaster. I feel like it was going to be a couple of years after this, but you notice the, yeah. the vibe about NASA and space being a really optimistic thing mm. for Americans to have the kids put a NASA sticker on a spaceship. They put a copy of a space shuttle on the front of it. It was, um, was so invoked. Do you remember? Did you ever see a movie called uh, Space Camp? Oh yeah, yeah. If you didn't notice this kid in um, Ethan Hawke? I think has the Space Camp poster on his wall of his bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Challenger Disaster. Just remember, if you like me, and you can't remember was a year <laughs> after this film came out. So I think that put a bit of a dent into American, yeah, American confidence and American optimism. But I feel like if you on a surface level, at least, if you look at the 1980s through the, the film and the music that was popular, it mm. was a deeply optimistic time compared to if we can't compare it to last week's film, which was as 90s as they get, Reality Bites, which had a, a bleaker outlook on <laughs> on life as young, a slightly older young person than these young people, but it, it certainly painted a less optimistic picture of the world. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I'll stop and think about it and go, I wonder what it was about. The eighties, it did that. I mean, I was not, I was there, but I wasn't old enough to really be paying attention to what was happening. But if you think about it, like you know, the Cold War was still real. There was still, you know, a very real chance of you getting the world being obliterated by nuclear weapons. Whereas if you flash forward nine years into the future, yeah. uh, reality bites. The Cold War is obviously over. I mean, the US is the predominant power in the world. You know, the Soviet Union's gone. Russia has, China hasn't really stepped up yet. So. You kind of wonder and go, why was everybody so depressed in the nineties? Um, but they were. Um, just don't have anything to fight right now. Pretty much, you kind of like we needed an enemy to point our our yeah. hatred at. Um, which again is maybe going too deeply sociological about a, a simple children's film. But <laughs> you, you nail it. The the sense of hope and optimism and joy of childhood. I think this is a particular time in childhood films. If you look at other films going around, um, you're drinking, um, I think it, I mentioned Labyrinth, um, uh, stuff like uh, Never Ending Story, Gremlins. Yeah. Um, yeah. Gremlins is kind of a kid's film. Um, Stand By Me, you know. 
and yeah, kind of. Um, but th there was there was a, a, a genuine rash of them that maybe it's they're the sweet spot for nostalgia for us, and we look back on them as more more influential than we than they are, perhaps. Um, the same way that you know Tarantino looks back at the '60s and '70s movies and, and that sort of thing, but there there was just this rash of movies that was incredibly optimistic and just youthful exuberance. And the the closest simile that I can think of is like in the late, the mid to late '90s, early 2000s, when we suddenly had that just swarm of teen rom coms. And it was not Porky's level um, risque comedy. It was the American Pie era. And yeah. that's the, that the closest to teenage optimism that we've had in, in movies since. I would say so. What was, I mean, and obviously you and I are, are not the intended audience for, for movies, for, for family movies, as they euphemistically call them anymore. Mm. But can you think of a live action family movie? a successful live-action family movie that has come out in the last five to ten years. I'm quickly scanning my brain. I can't think of many. Well, Jungle Cruise was successful, and that qualifies as a family movie. It's not excessively violent. It's the, sa the same kind of ilk as the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which... I don't think they're family movies. <laughs> they... Jungle Cruise, maybe. I haven't seen it, but other think... than being awful... Pirates of the Caribbean uh, one definitely are designed as family movies because they skirt that Doctor Who line of they there's genuinely creepy cre creatures in there, but they're given a little bit more heart and emotion and empathy to them so that you don't necessarily feel entirely just terrified of them like the Wheelers and uh, the witch who can just change your heads in the Return to Oz and that fucking nightmare of a movie. Um, there, there's this brevity to those movies that I think is the closest that they go before they just go, oh, well, if we're going to make a, a family movie, let's just make it animated. I think that's where family movies have migrated now. I mean, I, maybe maybe the answer is family movies don't look like they did when I was a kid, and that's why I'm not recognising them as such. The reason I don't think um, Pirates of the Caribbean is a family movie is because it's two and a half hours long, and... I think that I think that in itself disqualifies it as a family movie. Can find me a child who can sit still for two and a half hours. Well, that um, that time time frame thing of the the ninety minute movie is basically a, a, a you know a lost art. I noticed there's a category on Netflix now called sort of ninety minute movies, and I'm like, yeah. someone's listening to me. Um, it's just the side note on this um, movie length thing. The Batman, I'm extremely excited for it, but they're saying it's going to be pushing about the three-hour mark. If you can warrant the story, then sure, but otherwise, you don't need a fucking four-hour movie. Stop it, Hollywood. Stop it. I mean, it's just self-indulgence is what it is. It's self-indulgence. Yeah. Matt Reeves, I wouldn't have actually thought of as a self-indulgent director, but yeah. you, know, um, you need to get into your story. Two hours, 55 minutes mm. is what... Um, INDB says right now, um, that's kind of crazy um, <laughs> off topic already. Um, <laughs> but you know, I don't think the Dark Knight was that long, and that was certainly you know, um, Batman Begins was two hours twenty minutes. If we go to yeah. the, the Nolan films, yeah, um, and that was certainly you know, an, a an, an auteur director. 
mm-hmm. who had earned his keep with a very successful you mm-hmm. know, reboot of a Batman franchise. But Dark yeah. Knight was two and a half hours, and that had, you know, that had one of the greatest performances in comic book or any cinema, if you from listen to me anyway. But anyway, we're, <laughs> we're off topic. But Explorers is an hour 49, which is a little bit more palatable. So, I mean, to get into the plot a little bit, we have our main characters, Ben and Wolfgang, played respectively by very young Ethan Hawke and River Phoenix, both, and I think their first major big screen debuts. Mm-hmm. And they and Jason Presson, who's your name, actually was Darren. It rounds up the, the sort of a main trio of characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ethan Hawke is a space of sci-fi obsessed uh, young kid. Mm-hmm. A River Phoenix plays the nerd, which is kind of hilarious considering he was like the coolest guy alive for a yeah. while there. Yeah. Um, and Jason Presson kind of plays these sort of sort of the scrappy underdog kid coming from a broken home kind of character. Yeah. But more yeah. of the, the um, I guess you'd almost say the, pra- the pragmatist kid who who brings the technical skill or the you know the, the hands-on skills to mm. the team. Um, that Ethan Hawke starts dreaming about plans for a circuit board. Mm-hmm. Um, he scribbles down on a piece of paper and then takes him to his nerd friend River Phoenix or Wolfgang, um, who has who, James Cromwell plays his dad. Kind of hilarious. Mm-hmm. James Cromwell, I don't think ages. Like I think he's always he, been that old. Seventy-four. Yeah. <laughs> he he met in first contact in about ten years after this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, he has computers. Hundred and twenty-eight k computer. Thank you. His Apple can do it. So he designs the circuit board on his computer and then <laughs> somehow fucking builds it. I like. I, I don't know if that was a thing you could do in the eighties, but. You know, I know computer hobbyists were a thing, but <laughs> that was that's the other thing that was in the in the in the eighties. There was just so much love for the garage physicist. Everyone, you think of Honey, I Shrunk the Kid, you think of this, you think of pretty much any movie, even the Goonies. They had um, so like the the uh, gadgets and things like that that he would create and all that stuff. And there was just this. MacGyver style of I'm gonna just technology is booming. We don't know what we can possibly do. Okay, we'll write a thing where this happens because of technology, and it's just like sure, okay. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. It was. It, it, I mean, maybe that was influenced by people like if we think again about the era of people like Jobs and Steve Jobs and um, Steve Wozniak, who did start Apple in a garage. Yeah. Um, and by the mid-80s were, you know, a household name and the cult of jobs had started. So yeah, maybe that's where the influence came from. The, the, the icons of the you know, technology of the 80s had started their careers in, in the garage. So they build the, they build the circuit board somehow and they plug it into their computer somehow and it creates a, a, a glowing orb which can float around the room and by changing the size of it and using their computer, they can actually achieve using this all. They can achieve flight, mm-hmm. and so they, decide, they decide the best way to use this is they, they repurpose a carnival ride called a tilt a whirl or something, and they yeah. build their own little spacecraft with it, which they then put the bubble around it, and they can fly around and actually achieve orbit at one point in time. Um, the, uh, the the spacecraft they call the Thunder Road. Mm-hmm. And after a Bruce Springsteen song, I think it was. Yes. Uh, yes. And they have like oxygen tanks in there and shit, which to me. Because 
kids that are the age of about 10 to 12 can easily get hold of an oxygen tank. Very much so. It's much the way they're able to steal all the equipment to build their <laughs> spacecraft. Um, yeah, that's very, very, very well glossed over by the film. These kids are ripping off a hardworking American blue-collar <laughs> man who's just trying to make ends meet with his junkyard. And these stinking kids are attacking a patriot. That's what's going on in this film. <laughs> stinking liberals and their indoctrination starts young kids. I tell you, this is um, the, the arts. This is really what is the problem. The arts. You should, you should just get rid of it and replace it with all the very, very successful and talented conservative actors like James Woods. <laughs> it should be, just be James Woods starring in Michael Bay films. That should be it. There should be no other films. Um, maybe Kid Rock can score them. Apparently, he likes that kind of thing. Uh, that that would be a weird train wreck that I morbidly want to see. It would be interesting. I'd pay that. Yeah. Um, you could get you could maybe get um, Eastwood involved. He's a Republican. Um, so they achieve flight. Like you're right. They get all this shit, and like I'm like, I don't think that oxygen tank would be enough mm-hmm. for a particularly long period of time in flight. But um, the story solves that with more dreams. <laughs> dreams, dream sequences, and the dream sequences look like a Dire Straits video. Um, dire Straits meets Tron. Yes, uh, <laughs> a very hip, uh, cool computer animation. This is actually the first film, Industrial Light and Magic, actually co-produced. Um, so, since other than the Star Wars films, I think so. Yeah. ILM did some of it. This did not all special effects for this film. Um, so this is state of the art at the time, mm. and I should note there are a number of Star Wars references peppered throughout the film. If you can pick up on them, yeah. my particular favorite at one point, the kids take while well, they're testing the spacecraft, take it to the drive-in, mm. and the film showing is a a schlocky science fiction film starring Robert Picardo in possibly okay. one of my favorite. He's just. Okay. The, He's great, Robert Picardo. He drops up yeah. in the weirdest places. <laughs> uh, he's in three roles in this film, by the way. Three roles. And this is one of them. He plays the, the inter- protagonist of this bad sci-fi, sci-fi film called Starkiller. <gasps> um, and so um, if you're a nerd like me, you'll know that originally that Luke Skywalker was going to be Starkiller, not Skywalker, in the original Lucas version of uh, the script. Yep. Probably. I mean, it wasn't a Starkiller base. Was that what it was in in Force Awakens? It was, yeah. It was stuck in the base. So yeah. you know, it they didn't actually burn that idea. They just said, "We'll park it for forty years." Um, <laughs> so that's an idea. And there's another one where a kid puts a, a helmet on and then he uses a flashlight, a little bit like a lightsaber. There's a real home mm. screen. Um, so you know, this, this film is full of little, yeah, little kid bits like that. The kids go to Charles Jones. High school, and that's you know, Chuck Jones, Looney Tunes, and there yeah. are a number of Looney Tunes references throughout the film. So that's that's a particular staple of any Joe Dante movie. He is a huge fan of Looney Tunes, and every movie that is in you, you can find that sort of stuff. Uh, he actually did end up directing a Looney Tunes film, if I'm not mistaken. Looney Tunes yeah. back in action, um, yeah. Which so not I think we, uh, I don't think it was very good. I think we watched it like um, about a year ago, maybe. I don't think we've watched that one. I mean, I mean, we could watch it if you want, but I have no intention to take. Steve Martin in it. <laughs> yes. Anyway, uh, very sad. Um, 
Uh, we're not going... Uh, there's a spoiler alert right now. I have the keys next to We are not going to Looney Tunes back in action. It was moderately tempting because I've never seen it, but no. Um, there is all sorts of stuff about your, your classic sci-fi stuff. And there's a rat called Heinlein. There's yep. constant references to the 1950s War of the Worlds film. Such a you good said that's a very Joe Dante film to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they, and so then that sort of a first, it covers the first two acts of the film. We get to the third act where they, they take a flight and when they fly high enough into space, their computer in their ship is taken over by, we assume, aliens who, can, who transmitted the, the plans to them in the first place and they're guided into the alien spaceship where the significantly weakest part of the film takes place. Oh, yes. uh, I should also note here, but these kids are super chill. Like, they're flying in a really shoddily built metal and plywood carnival ride surrounded by uh, uh, some sort of bubble which they don't really understand. And they're just kicking it, flying past the moon, and they're like sitting there eating a sandwich and, you know, having a snack. And you're like, yeah, this is cool. Yeah, cool, 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 cool. Yeah, there's also no weightlessness involved, so that there's some special but tech inside the bubble. There's no inertia, right? That's, that's able to speed up and slow down without kind of going and getting the whole Star Trek. I was gonna say, it must be the anti inertia drive from Star Trek somehow, inertia field or whatever it was. It um, <laughs> but like, he's like, this kid, like, you're fucking flying past the moon, guys. Like, and you say, oh, it's all right, you know, and you're like, I would be shitting myself. But that's that's the thing. It's like even even when they meet the aliens in the end, it's sort of like not going like, oh my god, oh my god, it's an alien. I've I've been wanting to see it. It's, it's like, hey, what's up? You know, don't be afraid. It's all good. It, yeah, pretty they're pretty chill kids. Um, and maybe it says something about the optimism and you know of childhood in the sense you you don't yeah. know enough to be scared yet. Um, maybe maybe. Either way, um, they get to the alien spacecraft and they hunt around a spacecraft to find said aliens where we meet them. And um, they are whack. Sorry? I said they are unimpressive. Uh, I think the character's name is Whack and something else. Um, But Robert Picardo plays one of them. Mm. And he also ended up playing... We find out shortly afterwards that they're actually just kids themselves who've taken... The spaceship out for a joyride uh when their dad's whack uh is one of them and neek is the other That's, yes and uh robert Ricardo both plays whack and nick's and his father mm-hmm. uh in some yeah, he does the physical stuff but the other voices some of the voices were him some of the voices were somebody else frank welker did the voices for whack and nick's father so um yeah, he, he was the one at the very end. Uh, and these aliens communicate through pop culture references. Basically, they've learned how to speak English or learned about human society by intercepting human, Earth's TV signals, and that's how they've learned about us. Uh, yeah. And their entire conversation is basically references, references, references. It's like hanging out with me for half an hour. Um. And you're right, and there's some fairly impressive celebrity impersonations. There's some rock and roll dancing. Yeah. Um, I'll pay it the puppet work or, or costume work, I want to call them the costume effects, the creature effects, mm-hmm. were kind of impressive. They look good. Mm-hmm. Um, the giant, was it, they at one point encounter a giant mechanical spider thing. Yeah. It looks a little bit like the um, 
part of it looks like the thing at the greeted um r2d2 and c3po at jabba's yeah. palace in return of the jedi yeah uh, oh, how rude um but it was um again, it, it was i assume that was puppetry um that looked really nice. um a combination of puppetry and stop motion animation and um it worked well because it really it's- looked good um but <laughs> the weird thing is it doesn't look like it belongs in this film mm. it looks like it belongs in the terry gilliam film or something like that yeah yeah that's very true that is very but i, th- I think kind of thinking back on it because I remember kind of loving every moment of this until you meet the aliens and then it's a big letdown. But I think that's actually part of the point. Um, and the fact that these, these alien kids have reached out to kids as well, because all they know is TV, but they want to learn more. It's like, there's, there's an interesting message to that, I guess, potentially of, um, the the danger and the hazard of social media and what we are force fed on a daily basis what what we do (laughs) Um, and (laughs) don't tell don't reveal all our secrets i I, i'm fairly certain though there's no one i wasn't making a point about social media though in 1985 well you know they they had wireless connection to computers then obviously (laughs) so (laughs) this was Um, movie <laughs> i do love that about 80s movies computers can do whatever you need them to do anything you need them to do they can do it war games um, perfect example <laughs> this is a fine example of that this, this computer apparently they used a thirty-five thousand dollars custom built computer um for um for for a lot of the scenes in this film because the computers at the time literally weren't capable of doing what the film needed them to do mm-hmm. um but I guess the, the key point too is to remember is that we're creating a little bit critical of the third act is that that this is not the film that Joe Dante wanted to make. No. The film, but note here on IMDb's trivia section says the film was in a prolonged editing phase when the studio moved up a release date. The theatrical release was a result of accelerated editing and was not finished to the director's satisfaction. Mm. The studio told uh, director Joe Dante that he was finished and that they were going to go ahead and release what he had at that point. Joe Dante, I think, in interviews is called was basically described as being the film was dumped. Mm. Um, uh, it, it was a complete flop, a, a bit of a flop at, at um, release. It was released a week after Back to the Future, so mm, bad timing. Yeah. It made, made about ten million, I think, in the US, um, and it basically didn't do a whole lot better everywhere else in the world. And it was kind of one of those films that came mm. back, found its life, second life yeah. in, in, in on home video. Yeah. Um, but the original cut, according to Dante, was three hours and 15 minutes long. So if it was 2022, he'd probably get to release a three-hour version of Explorers um, and, you know... Re- release the Dante cut. There we go. Probably would have released it anyway. Like, if you're releasing a three-hour version of Batman, he would have got two and a half hours for this. Um, so this is an hour 49 minutes is the is the cut, according to... OMDB. Um, there are some slightly different cuts out there, I think, bits mm-hmm. and pieces in it. But yeah. there is an hour 20 or so of um, a content that mm-hmm. was cut out of it. And, and that's fine, right? Like, I mean, you, no one's going to suggest you release a two-hour, a three-hour cut of a, a family movie in the mid-'80s. It just wasn't the done thing. But, like, um, 
from what you what I hear is there was a lot of stuff cut out, there a lot of subplots and different things that cut out that might have made the film made that third act make a little bit more sense or fit yeah. in a little bit better with the rest of the film. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, but um, let, let's talk a little more specifically about the the trio of young actors because. As we've said at the start, this is Ethan Hawke's uh, first uh, feature film. It was uh, River Phoenix's first or one of the very earliest. Jason Priestman hadn't really done anything before this either. And yet they nail their character stereotypes perfectly and are charming. They are actually, and they're really great together. Mm-hmm. River Phoenix was originally cast as Darren, the role played by Jason Preston. Okay. Um but uh, for some reason got, they decided on Jason Preston instead. So, oopsie-daisy there, you missed over. You almost skipped over the major film star. Mm-hmm. Um, but they decided to keep River Phoenix on in the role of Wolfgang. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting, Jason Preston did not go on to do very much as an actor, I don't believe. You no. can always tell that by IMDb when their, their photo for a child actor is them or as a child. Yeah. But, um, not much. His last film was a TV movie in 1997. So um, there we go. Uh, whatever reason, Jason decided not to go on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, also, no, one of the things I also enjoyed about this was if you the reviews aren't good. The no. best score on this is fifty-eight. Yeah. The worst review on at least on IMDb's list here is on from the Washington Post by uh, Paul Atanasio. The kids are uniformly god awful, particularly the lamentably named Phoenix. Their wooden line readings play in long, flat scenes that look like some 12-year-old school project. And talking about the movie's sense of pace is like talking about Pike's Peak's sense of pace. I don't know what Pike's Peak was. Explorers is a veritable jungle of thematic and story threads that are never picked up. Oh. I just like that line about the lamentably named Phoenix, who would go on to be one of the biggest movie stars of the next 15 years. But, you know, don't mention the war. Um <laughs> I can understand part of that review in a sense those those thematic friends that kind of didn't get tied up a lot of way, but yes. calling the kids god awful, I think, is a complete mistake. I thought they were that fantastic. So and you, can, you look at the through, especially Hawk and Phoenix, and maybe this is confirmation bias because we know what they went on to become. But yeah. you can see star, you can start that they were stars in the making. They had something yeah. about them on screen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was kind of the the childlike innocence that Ethan Hawke brings to Ben, it's not saccharine sweet either. That's the, that's the, the line that quite often can end up going. It's like end up becoming little orphan Annie and it's like, Oh no, you are, you were too fucking cute. Fuck off and die. He is just a kid who is just really excitable and passionate about these things and doesn't actually have very good social skills because he's, specialized himself out of it in some in an unusual way um he's absolutely delightful he's in in the same way that um fuck what was the name of the kid in um never-ending story not uh, oh i've done a movie actor's name but yeah yeah uh, it was it's kind of that kind of caliber of like this kid's got just knows the character, knows what he needs to to bring to it. And he did so well. And then looking at um, River playing Wolfgang, especially when going back and looking at what he went on to do, he pl- this was kind of 
he managed to get his against type cast role at the start of his career and he did really well with it he was socially awkward but in a different way to the way that ben was and um, because he was just so logically minded there was that element of kind of spockish nature to him and that compulsive obsessive nature of science will out and then you look at the family that he's surrounded by and it makes sense so and interestingly i think part of the reason for that might be hmm. that um river phoenix famously grew up in a series of um south american communes with his parents and, and mm. um joaquin who at the time was known as leith i think mm. um and so there's a story you can find it in the trivia on imdb but apparently he didn't get a lot of the pulp culture references that were in the script because he wasn't familiar with them. Yeah. But, but I think what that brings to the role for him is he is, you know, he is a bit of an outsider in, in the real world at that point in time. He yeah. is not the kind of awkward kid in a sense. He's not used to being a part of a society yeah. that he's now finding himself in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think as a, as a tie-in to what we were saying about things being cut out, <laughs> I feel like there was a lot cut out for him meeting up with uh, Neat um, at the end and just him just hanging out like Zaphod Beeblebrox just with a random alien. It's like, yeah. okay, you seem strangely comfortable with this alien suddenly. Yeah, there's there's story that got missed out there. <laughs> yeah, a, a kid totally grew up to be a school shooter. You just know it. Um, <laughs> there's something wrong with that kid. Um <laughs> Uh, I found uh, one of the things I found a little odd about, well, it didn't quite work for me and, and it kind of stands out like dog's balls in this film is the character of Laurie Swenson. Yeah. Who is Ben Crandall's, the, 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 uh, the apple of his eye. He's the, the object of his affection. Mm. And there is some, some stuff in here about, oh, hey, we can take the spaceship up and we can look in the girls' locker room and stuff like that. But, a little bit, uh, a bit of big porkies about it. And you're like, no, I don't think you do that today. No. Um, and at one point in time, Ben actually does use the bubble to actually spy on on Laurie's bedroom, which is a little bit creepy for mm. eight or nine year old kid, I guess. Mm. Um, well, how old do you reckon they are? Nine, ten? I would guess about ten. Yeah, uh, it's a bit creepy for a kid to do that, but yeah. you know, yeah, it's the eighties. <laughs> But then there's a there's sort of it sort of talks a little bit about her. He walks past at one point and goes, "I would say give anything to see in her bedroom." He sees her craning her hair in the window, mm -hmm. and then she pops up at the end in their final dream sequence. So, um, it's because have, the alien that what dreams are made of. He has he gets a pendant of the aliens at the end, and this somehow sparks a dream sequence in in class at the end, which she is a part of, and she's flying with them. The uh, the three boys, and you're like. But you've kind of been absent from the story for her an hour now. We haven't even mentioned you since, you know, like mm -hmm. it, it kind of, I assume there was something, you know, there was some sort of connective tissue that was supposed to be in there at that point, which mm -hmm. ended up on the cutting room floor, which would have made sense why Laurie yeah. was so important enough to get the, the scene at the end of them flying when she, there really didn't seem to be any reason for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it's it's kind of ultimately really a tale of two movies by the, the first two thirds and then that last third where 
so much is obviously missing and so much was not completed. This is a proto Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, and it, it just f fails ultimately there. But for so much of this, for, for the ground-based stuff, them bonding as, as a trilogy and just working it all out and having that, that childlike delight of going, yeah, we could theory um, use this to move around and then it just mayhem ensues. It's brilliant. It's really, really good. It's, it's a lost gem. It, it is. And so much of it gets right. Mm. Um, that, that the magic of exploration, which I think obviously in the mm. title, it's about explorers, the magic of using your, your there being there no limits to what your imagination can achieve with, yeah. you know, with, and with a bit of a can do attitude in there. That 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 optimism, hope that comes with being a young kid in that age, growing up in a pretty um, pretty special time in in their country. Yeah. Um, or that line um, between Wolfgang and Ben, where Wolfgang kind of just looks over his shoulder and is like, "How did you come up with this?" And Ben just goes, "I guess I'm just that guy. I guess." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like um, which again feeds into that American myth of the you know the special individual, you know the. The, the coming up with a, the great idea, you know, the, the Steve Jobs, the Henry Ford, the Thomas Edison kind of characters. And sorry, I'm getting sociological on this again. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's, it, they really encompass, and can only, I can't really communicate to you how this captured my imagination as an 89 year old kid seeing kids who look like me, which we've talked about uh, representation before, you know, um, who look at me, who are doing something I wish I could do, you know, um, yeah. And really, and actually, really, an incredible is having an incredible adventure. Like I mm. think we all wanted to have an incredible adventure when we were that age. But you know, an yeah. incredible adventure probably meant riding your bikes down to the train tracks and throwing rocks at the passing train. Which it was, it was uh, the imagination. That's the thing. It's like you, ca you came off. Th this is a direct response of the the first first two thirds of the ET movies, where it's the delight and the surprise and the wonder of having that that special thing and being on your BMX and suddenly being able to fly and you your imagination goes wow this is the the next step of that fantasy fulfillment for a kid whereas I'm like yeah i have imagined as a kid to to fly and to go off and into the into the stars and like they're literally showing me what i play as a kid yes thank you cool done <laughs> um you, you're right it is a, it's a bit of a hidden gem not perfect and no. I'm not going to blame Joe Dante because he said he finds this difficult to look at. Mm. Uh, while he welcomes the you know the cult status, he does, he finds it difficult to look at because this is not the film that he wanted to make. Yeah. Um, so which it must be hard for for a creative person who probably worked very hard on this for a long time to have it taken out of his hands for you know spurious reasons. Um, but if you can ignore that, I still think I would be fascinated to know what a mm. kid today would make of this. Like, would it be a bit naff? Yeah. Uh, would it be overlist? Would would it be saccharine to them? Would it be saccharinely optimistic? Would the the rampant optimism be kind of you know really obvious and cloying to to a to a kid today who grew up in a more cynical age? Okay, so sub question here: Do you think that this is the kind of movie that could be remade today? Well, it's been attempted. It's been attempted twice. Um, Joe Dante. Was involved in attempted remake in 2014, okay. and I think Kerry Fukunawa, Fukunawa, the guy who did um, is it, his name? 
uh, one of the James Bond films. Yeah. And the guy who directed The Green Knight last year, were a, a couple of years ago, were working on an attempted uh, adaptation for Paramount. Um, right. So I don't know. That was the last word of either of those happening. So I would have to ta- say yes. If someone like um, Dante was involved, you know, it's eight years now, but only three or four years ago, people like Carrie Fukunawa were attempting mm-hmm. to do work on something like this. And yeah. I would take their word on this stuff a little better than mine. Um, mm-hmm. It would be interesting to see what something like this would look like. Yeah. Because um, I can't imagine it being this optimistic. No. optimism <laughs> would have to be dialed down. Yeah. The goofy alien stuff would have to be revised i feel like that's the part that just wouldn't fly today um i do kind of wonder if they could still keep the fact that the aliens are young um and the punchline of them just being kids kind of in the same scenario as the kids that we followed for the movie i wonder if they can keep that but at the I, same think they, time, I think that's an important part of it i mean i think one of the things I found myself thinking while watching it is this is Joe Dante's childhood mm-hmm. updated to the 80s. So these yeah. are kids obsessed with 50 sci-fi, Robert Heinlein, this Island Earth, War of the Worlds. These are the films that Joe Dante would have grown up um, watching. He was born in 1946. So yeah. he would have seen those sci-fi films of the 50s and 60s would have been his fair. I have to imagine if we remade it now, mm. you could, you'd struggle, I think, to make that work if you're gonna have kids again obsessed with 50 sci-fi i think you'd have to be more star wars obsessed kids right because mm. i kind of wonder about it it's it's a weird juxtaposition for the character of ben the the 50s and 60s sci-fi where the aliens were always the bad guy and it was all about the for lack of a better descriptor than what it genuinely was the great white hero saving the galaxy saving the universe you think uh flash gordon and that kind of character that's who it was and then in the time we've not really had a particularly sympathetic alien story or a fun alien story like et it's generally malevolent force coming in and it would be one hell of a breath of fresh air to to do that well, I guess it's just uh, also we have to remember that this is a kid's film, so yeah. he's probably not going to get away um, with, you know, um, you know, uh, them sort of having a malevolent alien trying to hunt the kids down. And if you are talking benevolent aliens, I will point out and say one benevolent alien of that time period was um, the Davy Ursula still. The, um, the main true. alien that was actually benevolent, and, and the humans were the villain in that film. That is true. That is so true. that's one. <laughs> <laughs> I stand corrected on one. <laughs> I enjoy going back to this, though. It, um, mm. it, it does pull hard on the nostalgia strings for someone who grew up yeah. in the in the 80s. Um, as I said, maybe it wouldn't play that well if you didn't. Uh, and maybe it doesn't quite play quite as hard for you in a sense that, like, you're, you were four or five years behind mm. yourself and your brother and um, – in your your sort of you maybe don't remember this time period quite as well as us, but it was um it was a fun time to go to go back to Van Gogh. Remember how much this thing meant to me when I first saw it. Yeah, the the last thing that I will quickly just point on is that the the Explorers theme music that plays throughout it, written and um, created by the legend of scores, Jerry Goldsmith. Um, 
this was it captured the essence of the movie so perfectly is that boom 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 it was just like that that kind of beat that was really simple but it's like okay this is going to be keeping me going and the the trumpets coming in bah, 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 and it just always everything was infusing the sense of optimism and hope and uh, jerry was so good at being able to do that you think of how comparing that to something like um the music that he did for um Ello confidential or fuck i think it was him that did the alien music as well just slightly iconic <laughs> he knows how to use music to elicit emotions and um pair well with visuals and story it was actually i noticed that as well thank you for pointing it out it was a he was very lucky to have someone that mm. talented involved in his project. Yeah, hundred percent. And it goes to show at one point in time I must have really believed in this. Yeah, because this yeah. was this was at the height of Jerry's power and Joe was a rising star during the eighties. He was he was hitting goals. So and it, it, yeah, at one point they had Wolfgang Peterson attached. Um and um he was wanted to film it in Germany and they said, Yeah, nah. Um <laughs> So you hire the hottest director in town, the hottest composer in town, and you go, yeah, I'm going to dump this on the market. Not interested. So who knows what the reason was, but they must have believed it at one point. Yeah. Now, sir, you have the keys. Yes, and I actually made my decision last week when you told me what this film was. I, I There were some choices at play. I could have gone with it, something like Small Soldiers to Joe Dante, which I've never seen, oh, yeah. or, um, you know, something else he did in the 80s. But... Um, there were, you know, there were a few links out of it. Robert Picardo was in a lot of stuff. I mean, Total Recall was an attractive proposition no, uh, we, for Johnny no. Cap. But no, we are going to follow the late, great River Phoenix. What a loss he was. Um, yeah. And again, there's a lot we can pick for in mm. his unfortunately short career. But I decided to pick a film that I've actually never seen before. Mm. Um, um, but hopefully, um, well, probably something I should have seen before. That mm -hmm. should be provide you some easy exits. But should be an interesting discussion nonetheless, and that is the 1991 My Own Private Idaho. You know what? I've never seen this either, so this is a good call. One of those films I think you were supposed to see in the 90s. Yeah. I was a little bit young when this came out. I was 14 when this came out, and mm. I just missed the boat. So this is two best friends living on a street of Portland as hustlers embark on a journey of self-discovery and find their relationship stumbling along the way. This is directed by Gus Van Sant, written by Gus Van Sant, and some jobber I've never heard of called William Shakespeare. Pfft, he's never got any more work, I'm sure. Um, apparently, this is based on Henry IV. I didn't know that. Um, but, you know, that opens up a couple of doors for me if you want to go down yeah. the path of um, Shakespeare as a writer. I think he might have. He might have written a couple episodes of um, Family Matters or something. Uh, I, think, I think he did a couple of episodes of Law and Order. Could have done. Yeah. Um, so this film stars... Rio Phoenix, the much beloved Keanu Reeves. I don't think we've used him before. James Russo flees in it. Udo Kia. Yeah, that's the uh, that's that's probably the route that I'm gonna go. I have no idea where, but he turns up in some weird fucking shit, man. <laughs> Flee was of course in the uh, Back to the Future films, if you want to stay to the eighties, but mm -hmm. you will have no problem getting out of that. And hopefully it's a good film. Um it's uh, got a good rating, and it was very famous in its day. And yeah, it's got well, Keanu in it, so you know everyone loves Keanu. Yeah. 
All right, nice call. Nice choice. I'm looking forward to getting that. Um, and it looks like it's pretty easily available as well. Yay! Right, yeah, yeah, for films, we uh, we can actually pay to watch. We can actually watch legally. We can give you our money, Hollywood, you know, um, without having to resort to underhanded tactics to actually get our hands on things <laughs> that we would like to view today. Now, um, do we want to have uh, just a short catch-up on um, the, the latest Peacemaker before we go to our sponsors? By all means. Yeah, cool. Let's do, let's do that then. So well, um, I'm at the episode three. I know there are four out there. I have watched... Um, is it, I think the, the last one I watched was A Chode of My Own or something, um, titled that way. Um it was either three or four. I can't remember. So we'll quickly look that up so I don't give away any spoilers. I will, I will so do we that. can talk safely about episode two um, because I have we have both watched. I actually watched two episodes um, last night just before bed, and mm. ended up um, I ended up uh, dreaming a lot about um, John Cena. And by the way, that is the fourth episode. By the way, you've seen all four if you've seen Cherry. Oh, so I will not go into details on number four. Um, so it, we have met a couple of new characters by the time we are to episode three, which I've watched. Um, we've now met, um, Vigilante and we've, uh, also met Judo Master. Yes. Which is kind of a goofy name for, and a goofy looking character, but I assume he has some, some lore in the DC universe. Yeah. I don't know anything about him, but it's Judo Master, the outfit and just the ridiculousness of it. That is the most... Um, uh, fuck, what, uh, super that this show has been so far to me. It looks like straight out of super. Just fact, a lot of it, it really feels a lot like super. The whole show, yeah, feels a lot like super. Um, Peacemaker has a, is a little bit more capable than mm. Rain Wilson's Crimson Bolt, <laughs> but he is a very similar character to the Crimson Bolt, yeah, in, in so many ways, but um consistently we we talked about it for the first episode about um how well-rounded the character of christopher smith peacemaker is and how well john cena is doing with that and um he's really going into some interesting places just breaking into that character and into the psyche of that character and just the the emotional turmoil that comes around with it it's like there's a great scene in I think the second I can't which episode it was, but um where he actually goes back to his um his trailer and is actually crying. Yeah. Um, which is not something you see a lot of superheroes do. And it kind of feeds into some of the pathos that we talked about last week of the character having a basically no father and you know yeah. uh being a image emotionally immature man child. We witness him basically have a nervous breakdown. And he, he sells it really well, and you can't help but feel sorry for him. But then the delightful flip of that is like, oh, what are you doing, you fucking pervert? You got the dick out? Straight away go back. Great conversation about about <laughs> Debbie dicks out and ended him, dude, look at my crotch. <laughs> um, it's, it's a, We learn a lot more. We've learned a little bit more now in episode three about what the butterflies are. Yep. That's a nice link back to episode one when talking about the project code names. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, which I thought was a nice nod. And you're right, there is a bit of a breakdown in the sense that the peacemaker actually has the opportunity, he's actually tasked with shooting a senator 
and can't bring himself to actually pull the trigger to kill children, which mm. is actually in a nice callback. Uh, Harcourt says to him, what about, you know, I, you know, adore peace and, you know, I don't care how many men, women and children I have to kill and torture to get it. And he goes, mm. yeah, I do say that, don't I? But yeah. I still prefer not to kill kids. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of nice little gradual transformation here from mm. taking Peacemaker from being the guy who was a bad guy at the end of the Suicide yeah. Squad to being back. He's almost resurrecting the character a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, it's going to be really interesting kind of where they end with the character as well, because he's going on a roller coaster of evolution for his, his man child, as we've said, and he's being put through the ringer in many, many ways. He's beaten up and beaten and um, outsmarted and outpaced and frequently comes up short in just arguments with the rest of his team with in fights and things like that. And it's like, it's a real sobering affair for him when he, especially at the start, when he's talking to, to the cleaner, when he's told that you, you can leave the hospital, it's like, I'm a fucking superhero. It's like, no, you're not. You're one of those fucking psychopaths. And he he's sort of like detachment from his own reality. And now he's being repeatedly slapped in the face with a cold fish saying, this is real. Stop it. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, it, I, I've enjoyed the the inter- we said Kudo Master looked a bit goofy, but um, I thought they handled it quite nicely. He actually did actually beat the shit out of Peacemaker and Vigilante, mm-hmm. um, which of course he kind of knew he was going to do because he actually doesn't look like he can. So yeah. he's, he's quite a small, um, no, diminutive, I think is the way to put it. Character yeah. is quite small, which um, which Peacemaker is keen to point out to him when he gets uh, tied up. Um, <laughs> the torture scenes were a little bit full on in, in the third episode. Yeah. Yeah, they um they're definitely not pulling any punches and I really a- approve of that because so far there's not really anyone who's actually uh, just the quintessential nice or good guy in any of these um characters. They're all they've all got fucked up mysteries and things. I think the closest that we've got to it is um where is she? Where is she? Um Seriously, she's not in the top five. Ah, there we go. Um, uh, Daniela Brooks, um, uh, Leota. She um, she seems genuinely struggling with some of the the morality of the things that she's doing, but that doesn't stop her from doing some really fucked up things as well. I enjoyed the the the, the second episode. A big part of it is about him escaping the building uh, in which the first episode ended, which yeah. actually is as usual, genuinely hilarious of him trying to escape building with the same time as um, collecting up the dead person's record collection, a CD collection, um, <laughs> and take it with him. Um, but also tying up a, a couple, taking a couple of hostage in their house and tying them up. <laughs> and um, just flirting with the woman as well. Um, pretty much. Um, and, you know, p- picking her up um, and, and yeah, starting a hilarious conversation about music between the husband and wife, wife being a big fan of the hair metal band Cinderella and can be playing, but her husband always talking about Coldplay and foster the people. And you're like, oh, this is my jam. Um, <laughs> so it, it remains uh, incredibly violent, mm-hmm. crass, yes. juvenile, yes, and yet hilarious and fun and yes. moderately touching. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's doing a really really good job of it's uh, 
attempting to juggle many different um, many different types, and it's it's just doing really well. Like the story as it's progressing is answering enough questions, but posing more that you consistently feel satisfied and hungry for more of every episode so far. I want to know where this is leading. I want to know more about the butterflies. I want to know more about what, um, uh, fuck, her name's completely gone out of, uh, Amanda Waller has actually got what her overall plan is for, for all of this as well. It's got a good level of persistent intrigue. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, it's it's pretty good for something he wrote in eight weeks when he was bored during the first lockdown and had no intention of ever actually making. But um, and I believe it's doing quite well. I think from yeah. what I've read around yeah. the place, it's it's getting. I think obviously it's very well rated. I, yeah. I read some stuff on Twitter today about it being one of the more in demand series at the moment. So mm-hmm. hopefully that's a good thing uh, in a sense. It's really hard to judge. With yeah. things like HBO Max, like I, I, I mean, I assume Netflix and that they'll have stats and they'll go, "Well, we heard recently there's a show on Netflix called Manifest." I don't know yeah. who's talking around. It's like Lost if the writers were really terrible, and considering how writer terrible and had no budget, um, and it was it was made for NBC, and then they canned it, I think, after two seasons, and it's been picked up by Netflix, and now it's been like number one. All around the world, because I guess people, it's, it's time of year, people watch a lot of telly. And I think that may have read they're getting another season, despite the fact of being canned. There's um, been a number of shows that Netflix have picked up and kind of gone to try and finish, uh, to, to just finish it off. Like Lucifer was one of the yeah. famous ones that they did. They ended uh, up doing development, another one. Yeah. Good. I mean, I think, mind you, the show is, is objectively terrible. Um, but uh, I, I might go back and watch some more anyway. But mm-hmm. it, it's pretty cheap and pretty nasty and pretty crappy. Um, <laughs> but you know, I know I see, I see stats. It's like there's hundreds of uh, millions of hours of watching this has been clocked up. I yeah. assume that's how all these streaming services make call on whether or not the show has actually been successful, and that's something that they were pleased about. So um, I'm assuming then if like this gets that kind of viewership. What I would like them to see, I would like to see them give James Gunn more money and mm-hmm. go, would you like to make more shit? Yes. Uh, and hopefully, which he would say yes after Guardians 3. Um, yes. I, but or not even that, but maybe more stuff like this, you know, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and less of that garbage that they've been making, DC have been making on the CW, like Batwoman and Flash and Arrow and uh, whatever that one with the guys out of Prison Break was. Um, you know, it's uh, yeah. They are fucking terrible. Those shows. They are terrible. They um, are cutter shows. They are cookie sorry? cutter. Cookie cookie. cutter shows for children and teens. I don't know who's making. Who they're making? They had a crisis on infinite earths. Um, in I think it was Supergirl and Batwoman, and I actually tried to download it and watch it. Like it was one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. The 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 worst part about all of those shows is. There is not one single streaming service that has all of them. You have to subscribe to like three or four. So when they do these, it's a seasonal thing. Every year they have this seasonal crossover. Arrow and Flash did it. And then they started bringing in Legends of Tomorrow. And then they brought in Supergirl. And then it just kept on getting bigger and bigger until they did Infinite Crisis. And it's like, okay, no one is signed up for all of these. Go fuck yourself. Sorry, I'm not giving you $80 
in one month just to watch one complete episode because you've segmented it into 12 sections. Sorry, fuck off. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if it's like that in the States or it's just us who are objected, subjected to that. Like, well, we are the world's poorest citizens. <clears throat> I mean, it's a little bit like which Star Trek shows are kind of all over the shop now. Like, if you want yeah. to follow all those, anyway, but um, who, if you really want to follow Star Trek shows that are on television right now, you're a very, very sad individual. Um, but anyway, I'm into, I'm, gl- I'm just saying it. I mm. hope it gets that viewership because more shows with genuine creative talent writing them like obviously not everyone's james gunn but like there would be another james gunn out there somewhere who's looking for an opportunity to do this um and you know take a risk with some of his lesser known characters um you know and is actually a fine way to maybe introduce them to whatever you decide to do with the dc universe moving forward what's fun about this show occasionally is they reference the fact that like um other heroes exist we talked about it last week but um uh, the character john economist mentions I would rather be working with Harley Quinn than you or Batmite or yeah. Goldman they were talking about. I, I didn't Google them, but I assume these are all legitimate They're, DC yeah. characters. Yeah, they are. Um, um, it's. I hope that they keep the relationship going with between James Gunn and DC because he has done some really good work. Even if they get him to be almost a pseudo Kevin Feige and it's going, okay, I want you to start to pitch us your ideas and godfather these things and see see how see how we do with that. We're not going to give you we're not going to give you the holy trinity of Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman because you know apparently no one's allowed to touch those unless they've got nude photos of executives. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's so like okay, you know what the, the we keep on getting people keep on asking for Justice League Dark. What could you do with that? That 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 could play into your wheelhouse of a bit edgier, right? Um, I still think it's a mistake that they didn't get Guillermo del Toro to to go through with his his pitch for that because that would have been fucking cool. I mean, again, they go back go back to fifteen years. They made a mistake by not having George Miller do his Justice League film. Yeah, I mean, well, okay, it sounds weird in hindsight, but it's George fucking Miller, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, we saw what he did with Fury Road, which is the next thing he did after that. The guy is a legend. Yeah, but, I mean. Um, I couldn't have been any worse than what Zack Snyder and Joss Whedon pumped out in the end. I mean, ignoring the the four hour version, which was all right. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, that's it. I'm keen to see what keeps going. It's been a lot of fun so far. Um, but then again, I'm a massive simp for James Gunn. Yeah, uh, I think I think John Cena does an amazing job of his character. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it'd be interesting to see what Cena goes on to do because he does comedy and action really well. Mm. Which is a little bit interesting because that's what Dwayne Johnson does really well. And I always felt that Dwayne, I would have been fascinated to see Jack Dwayne Johnson take on a genuinely serious, legitimate adult role. Mm. Not a comedy, uh, not an action role. I want to see him playing a grown up in a film. Mm. And I mean, he knows which side his bread's buttered on. He's not going to do that. He's going to take his $20 million paydays. I mean, I, I guess part of the problem is I, ha- I have issues with The Rock. I respect his game. He is the biggest self-promoter. He is harking on it all the time. But there was this thing that came out just the other day about he wanted to surpass the comic book representation of Black Adam. And it made me realize one of the things that I don't like about him as a performer is that he doesn't play roles. He twists those roles to be him. And 
it's generally worked, but it's kind of getting tiring now. But at the same time, when you look like the fucking rock, you it's gonna look fucking stupid just going, all right, this is average Joe. We're gonna put him in I don't know, a Wes Anderson movie. It's just he's gonna look I, weird. I think it would look uh, I, I would back Wes to do it. Oh no, I, I believe that Wes would be able to do it. I don't know if um the rock would do a movie like that, but well, that's I, I wonder about someone like that. I mean, what motivates him? Yeah, right? like as an artist, you know, I mean, what does he get out of it? He gets paid massive money now to do this shit. He, I mean, if he wants, he's got, I assume he's getting, there's a word he's doing San Andreas too. Uh, I assume he's getting paid big money by DC to do Black Adam. Um, you know, he wouldn't be short of coin. I mean, he would have been paid massive money to do all those fast movies. So mm-hmm. I wonder about people like this and I go, is it money that motivates you moving forward? Obviously, everyone likes to get paid well for their work. As a great man once said, if you're good at something, never do it for free. Mm-hmm. But what is it that motivates you to move forward and keep doing things? If he's enjoying what he's doing, well, I guess that's one thing. But do you, is there never a desire to extend yourself a little bit, yeah. to, to wade out a little bit further than you yeah. feel comfortable? Like to be, you know, if you're an actor, you know, I assume there's some respect for the craft. Mm-hmm. Do you, would you not want to try and play, you know, uh, someone in um, a film by Paul Thomas Anderson? Like think of a film like um, one of my favorites, Punch Drunk Love, yeah. where Adam Sandler played very similar role he always plays, but he was put through the lens of a really talented artist to become mm-hmm. something quite sinister in a lot of ways. Yeah. And something completely different that all the Adam Sandler fans apparently hate. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, that's the kind of thing I would sort of think, would you not want to test yourself? Um, why would you would you not want to go to Quentin Tarantino and go, yeah. I don't care, any role, any time, any place, I want to be in one of your movies and maybe Quentin would not be interested. I don't know. Would you mm-hmm. not want to be in the next um, Scorsese film or Christopher Nolan or do something really outrageous? I think of um, Tom Cruise in Magnolia. Yes. Or, yes. Or if we go to Tom Cruise in, what was it, uh, Eyes wide shut, you know, that was a fairly uh un Tom Cruisey kind of role for him. And in fairness, people don't like Tom, but A, he can act when he wants to, and B, he in his at points in his career, he has been brave enough to step outside yeah. the bounds of what everybody knows him for and do stuff that's a little bit weird and challenging. So that's what I wonder about people like that who are so successful at doing one thing over and over again. Is there never a motivation to take that chance to go, okay, I'll do San Andreas too? But mm. I want to do this indie film over here, and you're going to pay for it. Yeah, like it would, you know, just just to see him just turn up in one of the Knives Out movies, just completely out out there. I would love to see him do the villain role as well. He'd just be a villain because he was good at being an asshole in the WWF Attitude Era. He was good at being the corporate rock, the the, the, corp, the people's, you know, the corporate elbow and all of that shit. He knows how to do it, but he, it's it almost feels like he's scared of people not liking him. And he doesn't seem to make any difference at the moment between liking and respecting. And like you think of some of the people who are phenomenal as bad guys. Think of um, Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah, he is 
hugely respected. People really love him, but he's fucking terrifying when he's on screen. Well, Christoph Waltz, his whole career started yeah. out doing that bad, the, the Nazi, the Jew hunter, and, and now he's, I, I think he's actually, I think he's got quite a following. Like, yeah. People enjoy watching him as a villain. Exactly. And that there is that scope. If you can put the effort in, which The Rock puts the effort in for, for the roles, he works out and he tries hard and he practices and he practices and he practices, he can do it. I want to see him take a chance. This is where I think about when you're so successful, like I said, what's next? There's got to be something else out there other than money. Yeah. Um, we've gone on for a long time on this one, and I wanted to, to keep our promise and keep it under two hours today. So <laughs> time for our sponsor of the sponsor. day. Yes. Sponsor. Our sponsor of, of the day is, is the 1989, uh, I think, apocalyptic classic, Rollerblade Warriors Taken by Force, but just as a special treat for our viewers, because I know you deserve it, this is dubbed in Russian. <laughs> Badly. Oh, Badly. Fantastic. Get that queued up. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, to like, share, and subscribe. It does help us get a bit more visibility. Um, you can donate on Twitch as well. Кэтлин Кинон в фильме «Воины-роллеры». После великого потрясения, когда природа и человек объединились против самой жизни, появились святые крестоносцы обладавшие способностью исцелять больных и сражаться с теми, кто был готов убить за уцелевшие богатства мира, лежавшего в руинах. Космический орден воинов-роллеров отправил своего лучшего воина, Карен Кросс, сопровождать ясновидящую Гретчен Хоуп из монастыря в горах, кипящую бездну ада. Гретчен ничего не знает о войне и любви, но она видит все, что было, есть и будет. Она научит Харан и других сестер Ордена защищать слабых и освобождать души проклятых. Некоторые из выживших со временем сошли с ума, что делало их не менее опасными. Единственным средством от этой болезни было очищение мечом. Карен Кросс балансировала на тонкой грани между жизнью и смертью. Она одна сопровождает Гретчен Хоуп. Но им предстоит преодолеть бездну ада и 
Mania. This is Mania. This is a great film, by the way. If you haven't seen the whole thing, I recommend it. <laughs> it's um well in 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 the oeuvre of you know um uh rollerblade post-apocalyptic films yes i think it's genuinely acknowledged as a citizen kane of that genre um I, and I, I mean, I think um, makeup is an important part of every post-apocalyptic um, yeah, yeah. rollerblade warrior's morning routine. Is he going to be a I mean, exactly. You're not a rollerblade yet. Not everyone gets to be a rollerblade warrior. It's true. Yeah, and the, uh, the, the that's a pretty good haircut for a post-apocalyptic. Oh, saucy! Ooh, saucy! That's enough of that. Good. That's a bit above the uh, bit above the knee there. I think it's, yeah, we'll cancel all of that. Um, if you're enjoying that, <laughs> that is available on YouTube um, in Russian. Um, it's the best way of watching it if you can't watch it in the original Klingon. True, um, but you know, it's out there if you want it. So. Um, <laughs> If you're so inclined, I have actually seen the original film, so um, I can say that you, you haven't lived until you've seen it in the original Klingon. <laughs> Did you ever see a movie with uh, Jason Patrick called Roller Babies? No, I didn't see that one. Oh, that's that's bad. <laughs> it's it's so bad. It's good, but it's bad. <laughs> I will not take us there. I promise. Wow, well, I mean, there's always always a temptation. If you are, if I ever make a mistake, I know it's coming my way. I don't know if I'm that cruel. <laughs> now, uh, where are we going to go to next? Well, uh, let's talk a little. If it's it is technically um, Australia Day today, as I hinted at the start, or uh, Invasion Day, uh, or any of the different titles you'd like to give it. Um, I think changing the date is probably a very good idea at this point in time, but I don't expect that to happen anytime soon. But no. given it is in this day where we think talk a lot about Australia, mm -hmm. I thought I would talk about an Australian film that I got to see. <gasps> we don't talk a lot about Aussie film. Like the last one we talked about was Nitrum, the Martin Bryant film from out late last year. Um, they don't come out a lot. There's a lot of TV, I think, these days being made for Stan in particular. Mm -hmm. um but um the streaming service i don't have anymore um but australian films they're a little harder to come by um these days so the merger was made in 2018 um but i only heard about it a couple of weeks ago um and it is um troy carrington a former professional footballer returns to his country town after an abrupt end to his sporting career and is persuaded to coach for hapless local footy team the roosters Okay. Um, in terms of stars, um, not terribly many you'd be familiar with. The biggest star in the film is uh, John Howard, not the politician. I was going to ask. The actor. Um, John Howard was um, in, uh, well, I don't even know how much of this you'll know, but he was in a film. I always remember him in a film called Young Einstein that came out about 1989. It was a great film. Um, he was, he was apparently he was in Mad Max Fury Road. He was in the club. 
which I would love to have you watch sometime. It's an Australian classic. Um, and just about every Australian film you could pos- or TV show you can think of, he's been in it. Um, okay. But the, the real, I guess, creative force behind the film is Damien Callanan, who, mm-hmm. is, to my knowledge, is actually most well-known as a comedian, mm-hmm. a standing com- comedian, also um the there's the sketch comedy for Australian TV shows and stuff like that mm-hmm. um uh, the wedge is one that I think I can remember you, you do not you expect you to remember this is before your time in the country I am the not wedge, making notes so I would not pass this test the wedge notably was was actually where Rebel Wilson really came came to the public's notice for the first time I think on Australian television um playing, playing one character the same character over and over again um it was funny the first two times and then afterwards you're like oh no um but she's gone to bigger and better things uh damien callanan wrote this uh i believe it's based and it says here it's based on his one-man play which i would have been fascinated to see um so it does revolve around the concept of australian football if you're Mm -hmm. unfamiliar with that uh, I know you are because I've taken you to, you to that game, of course, where you noticed for lack of police. <laughs> <laughs> it's so different compared to English football. Yeah, there was no stabbing. Yeah, there's no stabbings. I didn't get hit with a chair. It was good. It was good times. I felt. Oh, you called it a soccer right? As a sort of <laughs> notes, he is a former Australian football major league player mm-hmm. called the Australian Football League, AFL. Um, and after breaking his leg while running through uh, the banner on Grand Final Day, in nine places he has had to retire and he's returned to his country town um which uh name escapes me right now um and he has kind of made a bit hasn't actually made a good name for himself upon his return um he okay. led a march against um an anti-logging march that ended up shutting down the local town logging mill and hence he around the which has not been taken well by the local town and hence he's known around town as town killer um wow okay that kind of introduces one of a strange um what a strange one of the unusual shall i say aspects to the film Mm. um that it really works hard to have a social conscience okay um it's working really hard to to incorporate as many social messages as it can not in a you know uh star trekian kind of way which that you know the idiots running the show there try and do these days in a completely overt and slap you around the face. No, what you mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's the, the message or whatever you want to call it. It, it infects a lot of um, popular television and film. It's so obvious what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's very obvious here, but it's in a slightly more casual Australian way. So in addition to this town having had a, a significant green movement, He's also been chosen as a settlement site for a lot of refugees. So there's a refugee sort of settlement office in town. Um, and that's sort of portrayed as, uh, at least initially, uh, as causing some consternation to the town. Why are these bloody refos being bought here anyway? Um, but against the backdrop of this, the local team, the Roosters, are basically being forced to merge with another club uh, because they're essentially they don't have enough players and their club rooms uh, need to be torn down because they're full of asbestos Mm. Uh, against the bat and the, the clubs um, patriarch, if we will played by um, John Howard here 
mm-hmm. as Bull Barlow is um, in and out of hospital, some health issues. Uh, mm-hmm. They don't have a coach for the coming season. And okay. they, um, against that, we, we she, um, Bull Barlow's daughter-in-law decides that maybe it'd be best to actually try and coax Darren, uh, Darren, Damian Callanan's character to kind of come back into the fold and potentially coach the local footy team. Uh, at the same time, her son, Neil, played by Rafferty Grierson, which is a really cracking name, by the way. It is a good hey, name. What's your name? My name's Rafferty. Rafferty. Um, <laughs> yes. Who um, was in Children of a Corn. They made another one of those. Great, great. Um, um, he is making, he has, um, uh, as I said, he's Andy's son. His father has passed away, and he's decided to start making a documentary about Troy unwillingly, Troy unwillingly to take part about him, the fact that he's a hermit who has no friends. And through that, Andy sort of comes in contact with him and decides to try and bring him back in as well as the coach, which, of course, has to happen. Um, And his philosophy as a coach is somewhat different. Um, He decides to start bringing in as a tactic to get enough players, start bringing some of these refugees who've been resettled in the town to play on the football team, including Saeed, played by Faisal Bazi. I am apologising to him and anybody who underknows how the right way to pronounce that because I'm certain I didn't get it right. Mm-hmm. And he is um, he's actually really, really good in this. He's a, he plays a Syrian refugee who um, learned how to play football um, by playing the guards on Nauru. While okay. he's in immigration detention, and has actually heard of Damien uh, Carol, uh, Troy by reading Troy's book, being the only book he had access to, only books he had access to in Nauru were AFL biographies. Um, mm-hmm. He's actually, I think, torture under the uh, Geneva Convention. Um, <laughs> he's actually a really interesting actor. I thought he was wonderful in this. Um, he's been kicking around. Uh, he's done some because he was in Peter Rabbit uh, a couple of years ago. Um, a bunch of Australian television, and including a film called We're Not Here to Fuck Spiders, which I am genuinely interested in seeing if I can find yeah. that. Now. Like, what a great name for a film. Um, <laughs> I am sure that's going to be playing at your local multiplex all the time with a title like that. Um, and as you can sort of imagine, this is not a particularly original story from there. Mm. It's basically Major League in Australia with refugees. Okay. Um, it's trying really hard to sort of play into the um, the same sort of space occupied by something like The Castle, which I think yeah. I forced you to watch as part of one of our Australian seasons a few years yeah, ago. Wonderful. And I um, fully understand, having lived in King Lake for all this time, I now understand the joke that is, how's the serenity? So much serenity. Yeah. Um. <laughs> And the um, the, it, we've got a, a series of goofy characters who make up the football team, including Goober, Snapper, Carpet Burn, and Porterhouse and Harpo. Um, Those are perfect Australian translations of a Guy Ritchie movie gangster. Movie. <laughs> really would be, wouldn't it? Goober <laughs> and Snapper and Carpet Burn. It's um, it's it, and, and they're not explained why these nicknames are in there. It's it, it's on look. It's on Netflix if you're in Australia. Um, it weirdly has a th- an interesting Shakespearean thread running through it. 
Uh, I won't give any more clues. And I actually had to go to my friend who's a Shakespearean actor, uh, Marty, whose performance of Mention of Venice, I believe, opens in the next couple weeks That's in right. Melbourne. So um, fingers crossed for that one. I think mm-hmm. it starts around about the ninth, if I'm not mistaken. But if you Google, uh, if you're interested, it's in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. Please don't ask me exactly where it is. I'm sorry, Marty. I should know, but I've got my ticket and I'm hoping that has the address on it. Um, <laughs> just a plug here again. If you like your Shakespeare. I've got this ticket. I'm going to see this. <laughs> exactly. I just I just turn up at the movies with a ticket to, to you know, to do oh, Merchant right. of Venice and I go, sir, this is a Wendy's. Um, <laughs> um, that but, sounds like a you problem, not a me problem. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, get along if you can. Um, support local theatre in Melbourne um, yes. if you can. Um, oh, that sounded interesting. Uh, yeah, it's just saying don't forget to do armchair producers. <laughs> ah, wow. Good reminder. Pro tip. Um, nearly missed it. But yes, there is a weird Shakespearean thread running through where Jed told Marty about being a, being a Shakespearean actor herself. Um, so there's a weird combination of different stuff going into this. The, the sort of various Australianisms of you know, something like the castle, the mm. sports story in there, which we've seen done a lot of times in films like Major League. We've got this heavy influence of um, social conscience issues and um, particularly um, pro-refugee sort of messages um, in there as well. And sort of these odd concepts about art, like um, one of the players is an artist and a Shakespearean at the same time. Mm -hmm. A sort of a cross-culture thing happening in there, which is actually happening in Australian football to a degree. So... um, Look, I, I, it's a weird little quirky little film, but I actually kind of liked it. Um, okay. It's it's not a particularly substantial film. This is not going to change your life. Mm. It's only goes for an hour 43 minutes. It doesn't overstay its welcome like the Batman's going to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and look, if you're looking for something light and entertaining and fun and particularly Australian, so overseas people, if you can find a copy, I don't know if it's going to pop up on your Netflix or not, um, I, would, I would recommend it. And a quick shout out to... A uh, friend of a show who recommended it to me. You know who you are. Um, That's and... not a very good shout out, Travis. <laughs> not a very good shout out. Okay, well, yeah, uh, it, it, it was going to be mysterious about it. It was our old friend of a show and one time co host of a show, Trudy, actually recommended this to me. So um, I, I think it's just because it was about football, I guess. And being, I mean, my reputation as a football fiend mm-hmm. um, probably. Um, uh, precedes me and hence um hence was the reason for uh, getting it suggested but it was a good call because it's actually a decent film okay i just spotted the tagline on the the poster and it's if they can play they can stay that sounds like a tagline that's like arnold palmer would use or something like that no clive palmer not arnold palmer he's a gopher Arnold Palmer might do it too uh, <laughs> in fact, uh, uh damien callan's troy has a um uh, his uh, character in the film actually has a, is a line. His coaching philosophy is keep doing it until you're not shit. Um, and, I, and I think that kind of sums up his podcast. But, you know, we'll stick at it, you know. It's, nah, it's been seven or eight years now, but we'll get there. We've hit peak podcast. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Any other things to say on the merger? No. No. Get out and see it if you can. Support Australian film, even if it's on Netflix. Okay. Yeah. Well, 
We, I made the joke about um, Guy Ritchie um, side character name. So I'm going to go over to his latest movie, which is Wrath of Man, starring the Guy Ritchie machine. Um, and I've forgotten his name. Wow, I, I really need to get some sleep. Uh, what's his name? Uh, fucking... Uh, oh, Jason Statham. There we go. Jason yeah. Statham. <laughs> no-name actor there. Yeah, a little no-name actor. Um, this has popped up, and I've had a couple of people, like... A friend of the show, Paul Storm, on Facebook, he gets to go and see a lot of movies. He's got the very, very... Um, <sighs> very respected Cineworld Cinema Pass, which I had when I was in London. So he can go to cinema as much as he wants for £15 a month. And it's incredibly, incredibly good idea. And they should do it here as well, please. But he is someone who I don't think he's ever given a bad review. And um, he has seen Wrath of Man and he recommended it. He said that I probably like it because it's not the typical Guy Ritchie movie of, um, the one from a, from a little while ago that we watched, The Gentleman, and um, his Lockstock and Snatch and all of those movies that he did. Um, and to a degree, he's right. But this is a really, really strange movie for Guy Ritchie. So the plot follows H, Jason Statham's character, a cold and mysterious character working at a cash truck company responsible for moving hundreds of millions of dollars around Los Angeles each week. And the, just from the very opening of this and especially um, doubled up because it happens to be in LA as well, you do get a bit of a heat vibe, that kind of that gritty gangster kind of vibe to it. And the way that it kind of tells its story, it jumps backwards and forwards um, from kind of now to three months ago to six weeks from now. And it does that a lot, but it tries to play that cat and mouse kind of game without ever showing you the other party. Because essentially this is Jason Statham doing a whodunit. Um, but we're never fully given everything until right near the end. And a lot of mythos is built up around Jason Statham's character. For example, there's um, he successfully um, stops a heist uh, on one of the trains and it kind of puts everyone on edge and half the people that work with him kind of consider him this hero because he just got out and shot people easy and just saved everyone, saved the money. Um, other people start getting a bit suspicious and kind of wonder if he's maybe some kind of psychopath. Um, but as it grows on, there's another um, heist that he is involved with. And as he comes out of the back, the guys that are there with the guns and shit, just suddenly, like, what do I fucking grab? They suddenly recognize him and just run away. And it's like, that's kind of cool. Are you going to elaborate on that? And to a point they do, but they never actually explain who the fuck he is because he has a relationship a working relationship with Andy Garcia, who's in this movie called Agent King. And basically, Andy Garcia is there just to kind of pseudo-authorize Jason Statham to just kill these people. 
Um, but it's an interesting cast. You've got Jason Statham. You've got Holt McCollany, uh, who um, you definitely recognize the face for. He was in um, Fight Club. Fight Club, and of course, more recently, Mindhunter. Yes. Um, so he's a good, solid actor, but he's doing a weird, little bit of a weird role here. Um, my boy Josh Hartnett turning up in an unusual role. It's good to see him still in movies, but I was hoping that he would be a bit bigger than a, a side. He was a big star. Remember, he was a big star once upon a time. Yeah, he was like he was starring like alongside like Harrison Ford and Ben Affleck and stuff in really big films. And then like you mentioned the George Miller Justice League, he was going to be. Superman or Batman or something? One of them, I think. Um, it's got uh, Jeffrey Donovan, who I'm a fan of because of Burn Notice. He was great in that. Um, he was in Sicario, Day of the Dead, and The Changeling. Um, solid performance overall. And then as he's getting older, fuck me, Scott Eastwood is just getting more and more like his fucking dad. Jesus, he just, just looks just like him. But... He is going a bit more of the playing the slightly more unhinged kind of characters. Um, and he does a good job overall here, but you know, to it, it ends up being a bit dull overall. It's got Eddie Marson in there, who anyone who has ever watched anything that's British will instantly know him. He was in um, he was uh, Peter Page in The World's End, he was in 21 Grams, The Disappearance of Alex Creed, which is actually a really good movie. Um, he's popped up in a lot of stuff. Um, those are the main names that you're gonna just suddenly rec uh, recognize as you as you watch this movie. If you do, directed by Guy Ritchie, based on another um, on the film uh, Le Convoyeur, and and Guy Ritchie co-wrote the screenplay with Ivan Atkinson and Mark Davies. I think the script is the problem here. Because Guy Ritchie has got a couple of kind of like cinematic uh, things that he likes to do, like the, the in-your-face moving around, kind of permanently stay focused. He, he uses that tactic a couple of times. The time jumping and the slowing down and speeding up that he kind of did in uh, the Sherlock Holmes movies that he made, it's all present and correct there. The fact that Jason Statham seems to be becoming... The, like a poor man's Sean Connery of no matter where he is, he'll always have that London accent. <laughs> um, he, I think he's actually supposed to be from London. Like people refer to him as the limey and things like that. So it writes in, but at the same time, it's like, okay, but his character seems to have what be transcontinental in notoriety. You're not going to go into that. Okay, fine. Whatever. Um, it's, it's just a bit of a mess and it gets really convoluted trying to tell this really compelling story, but it's actually not. And there's no one to really empathize with you. You would kind of assume as he's the lead, you're supposed to have build empathy for Jason Statham, but you really don't because he is a broken, scary individual. Um, and you're definitely not supposed to, um, empathize with the bad guys because they're bad guys but at the same time they do put some sympathetic elements to it um but it never goes far enough with any of them and it spreads itself too thin so it's it's a i guess it's a worthwhile streaming one if you can watch it for free but how are you how did you, how, do you know where we can see it 
This was on Prime Video, I think it was. Prime. Yes. Well, if it's on your streaming service, is a good night out with a bit of popcorn kind of? Yeah. I mean, if, if you want something just there in the background, you're never too far away from a, an action scene, which are tolerable. They're not great. There's, it's certainly not of the caliber of, despite how it really pushes to try and evoke imagery akin to something like heat it never ever remotely reaches the heights of that for the action or the storytelling or the performances um but it's it's engaging enough that you can have it on in the background your partner's around and you want to have something just there whilst you have conversation eat and enjoy yourselves it's fine it's fine i just think that guy Ritchie has He's going through a hard time. I really think he's finding uh, finding it hard to get to find his voice and get money for it. Like you know, he famously was talking about on the uh, um, I think it was the Joe Rogan podcast where he said, "If it's not a franchise, no one wants to give you a fucking cent," which tragically is very very true. Um, I mean, he would actually. I was going to say he's the kind of guy who's got one trick and does it again and again and again. Like we're talking about the Rock, but. I'll give him kudos. He did direct Aladdin a couple of years ago, and that was all one that made us all go, huh? Uh, yeah. Disney musical, yeah. live action Disney musical, like yeah. Guy Ritchie. Exactly. He, and he, he did it. So chances sometimes. Um, so I would I would love to see him just be given like an angel investor and just go, okay, you are gonna sit down for six months and nut out this screenplay. Get uh, get who you need to help you, and then we're we're going to make your vision because he seems to have lost his way in some way, and or lost lost the bite that he had from his early movies, which really elevated him. That, that attack attitude has gone, and it's a lot softer and. Uh, well, I would argue that he does only well. He's tried other things, but I think he only does do one thing well. Mm. And that sort of quirky action crime comedies. Yeah. Uh, and if we compare him to other people who, you know, uh, your Chris Nolans, your Paul uh, Thomas Anderson's, your Wes Anderson's, your Quentin Tarantino's of a world, um, the really successful directors, uh, uh, but critically and, and commercially, they have a number of strings to their bow. Yeah. Um, I would like to see him just... Um just really find some material that sings and talks to him because it just seems, feels like this this missed step. Uh, just to be confirmed, this is available in Australia on Binge and Foxtel. Yes, Binge. That's where I watched it. Yes. Um, but yeah, that's really all I wanted to say on Wrath of Man because it, it, ne it doesn't do anything badly. It doesn't do anything particularly well. It's, it's a very... Middle of the Man. road safe movie, yeah. Um, I know that Guy Ritchie can do better. Jason Statham can't really. He just does that character, and that's what he does. That's fine. Um, Scott Eastwood needs to get a starring role in something because he's interesting. The the, the small bit parts that he's been slowly but surely clocking up. Um, I want to see him get out and do some shit. There was a there was um early so like a few years ago. There were people kind of saying, "Oh, he could be Wolverine," and 
yeah, he could. He's definitely got the physique ability for it. He's his hair just needs to be parted in the middle, and he's got <laughs> the Wolverine fins. He would be an interesting choice for sure because he can be charming, but at the same time, he can be brutal, which Wolverine goes berserk. He needs to be brutal. Yeah, that's it. Uh, not a, exactly a glowing endorsement, but I think if you're a fan of, of Guy Ritchie, it sounds yeah. like it might be the kind of thing you'd enjoy. If you really like your stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were a bit met about on a gentleman as well, if I recall correctly from a couple of years ago. Yeah. And that is, I meet a lot of people who tell me how much they like that. Yeah. And it's kind of a mystery to me. So I think maybe his stuff just appeals to a certain audience of people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely true. Um, do you want to give your final thoughts on uh, Yellow Jackets? Yes. So um, people who watched or listened in last week might have heard my glowing review for the first, I think, six episodes of Yellow Jackets I'd covered to that point in time. Mm -hmm. um, for those who are not familiar with it, it's a TV show um, in Australia on streaming on Paramount+. Plus. It's a Showtime show, so I don't know where Showtime stuff pops up in the US. Is it on Hulu? I don't know. <laughs> you know, if you if you get Showtime in your service places other than Australia, then this is where you watch it. A wildly talented high school girl, high school. Uh, let me start again. A wildly talented high school girl soccer team becomes the unlucky survivors of a plane crash deep in the Canadian wilderness. Mm. Um, part equal parts survival epic, psychological horror story, and coming to age drama. Yellow Jackets is a saga of a team of <coughs> he said, he said, high school girls, soccer players who become the survivors of a plane crash in a remote northern wilderness. The series chronicles their descent from a complicated but thriving team to savage clans, whilst also tracking the lives of attempted to piece back together nearly 25 years later. So as I sort of noted last week, the show takes place in two time periods. We have we flick between what was going on in the 90s after the plane crash and then flip forward to the, the survivors of that plane crash and what they're doing in the present day. And mm -hmm. as it sort of notes, the, the travails and dramas that they're going through, um, living with that, the knowledge of what that what happened to them in the past, as it says, putting their lives back together and the random shenanigans and dramas they get up to. Shenanigans mm -hmm. probably doesn't give you the right impression. <laughs> um, one of the real strengths of the show is it's ensemble <coughs> cast in mm -hmm. the... Uh, Present day, uh, we have Melanie Linsky, Tawny Cypress, um, Christina Ricci, and the Juliet Lewis, um, who are all doing some of their best work in this. Um, I don't think we would have heard of any of the uh, actresses playing the actors playing the um, their, their teen versions, but they would be um, uh, Sophie Nalise, uh, Sophie Thatcher. Uh, Jasmine Brown and Samantha Hanrity, um, also calling out an honorable mention to Ella Purnell, who doesn't have adult. Um, she doesn't survive. Fair enough. It's not a spoiler. You find out pretty early on. Oh man! But uh, Jackie isn't um, isn't one of it. Isn't represented in the present day. Mm -hmm. um, I really enjoyed the first half of a season. I think probably more than the second half of a season. Okay. I think it's still very good TV. Where I think it's falling down a little bit for me in the second half of the season is I think the pacing's a bit off. I think okay. it gets a it really sets up um, and it's really a victim of its own success. I think the first five or six episodes are some of the best television I've seen in years. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it sets the bar incredibly high for the rest of the series to live up to. And it doesn't quite, but it still comes pretty close. So it's still a decent television. So it just sort of seems to draw things out a little bit too much mm-hmm. in the second, the last three or four episodes. Where it's like, come on, you've been promising things, you've been setting up mm. story elements, and you've been, you know, things have been developing, but they just take so long to get there without actually mm. doing anything new or interesting. You just seem to kill time quite a bit of a time between interesting things happening that okay. you're kind of like, uh, I'm getting a, getting a little bit slow here, guys. Yeah. Um, and I guess for me, the final episode, I seem to be the odd one out here because a lot of people seem to really, really like the final episode. Um, the whole series has an, eight, an IMDb rating of 8.1. Mm-hmm. Um, the last episode has an 8.4 on mm-hmm. IMDb for what it's worth. Not terribly many votes, so maybe it's not. Mm. Um, I kind of feel like, well, the first shot in the series is a girl in, in is set in uh, in this time period in the nineties after the plane crash. Mm-hmm. A girl in what looks to be a ninety running away, running through the snow in panic, falling into a pit of spikes, and basically being impaled on those spikes. Okay, or being being hung up and it's insinuated being cooked and eaten by the rest of the girls. Now, this is literally the first shot of the series. So no spoilers. It's like literally the first two or three minutes of a show. Um, a statement. It is, and it's kind of setting something up. And it's not mm. unusual to make us wait until the last episode to pave mm. it off. But they didn't pave it off. Oh. In fact, there is very, very little payoff in the last episode. So there's quite a bit of stuff happening, as you can imagine, through 10 hours of TV. There's mm. sort of set, lots of different story elements, lots of mysteries that sort of set up to go, hmm, I wonder what's really going on here. Mm-hmm. And kind of expecting, well, I know they've got a season two. I don't know if they knew they had a season two when they wrote it. Mm. But at the same time, I expected a little bit of payoff for getting to the end. You bet, you get basically none. All it does is set up stuff for season two. So things happen. And you're kind of like, oh, who are those people? What's going on there? Hey, what's what, what's happening? Like, oh, um, it's like two minutes to go. So, um, okay. And you still haven't told me who the girl was at the start. Um, and again, like, I guess, you know, people are like, oh, well, you've got to set it up for season two. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. But I kind of, I, I kind of went over and watched all of your show to the end. I kind of want a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a payoff. I want a little bit of a nibble to give me, reward me for all that television. Pay off some of your stories. It'll, you know, yeah. Solve some of your mysteries, but it solves nothing. It gives us no payout. No, no, um, it, yeah, no payoff at all. Now, some people were going. Obviously, I've read. I've read a lot of reviews online. People loved it. They thought it was brilliant. I'm like, I'm sorry. I was disappointed that I got nothing. They gave me nothing. Mm. And interestingly, I've did a little bit of research. A lot of the major plot elements, apparently the writers, at least at the time of the interviews, didn't know how they were going to be resolved. Um, oh, stop doing this, writers. I, I don't know how that's... Like, I was talking to someone about... To um to Michelle about this this afternoon, who is a writer herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was sort of curious, and you're a writer, so I'm curious in your opinion about... I mean, it's different, I guess, writing novels, which is what you both do. I mean, you've, you've attempted screenplays as well. You're... Your novel started out as a screenplay, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I mean, as someone who has tried to write screenplays a few times, like, do you think you should ha- know 
what your story, what happens in your story when you write yeah. it. Like, you know, there's, yes, there's a certain element of fluidity and like you, you write a story with a goal in mind. That's the point. Otherwise the journey ends up becoming confusing and unnecessary because you haven't got anywhere to resolve it anyway. You haven't got that cathartic release. Um, but yeah, it evolves as you like the, the finale is largely the same for me for all of my books that I've always had in my mind, how I get there has changed as I've learned more about the characters. And I'm sure that when you give your script to um, artists, directors and things like that, going to say, oh, we need to just change this a little bit and that, and it's going to mutate a little bit the ending, but the, I, I can't see how they go into production just going, oh, yeah, we haven't worked out where everyone ends up. That, uh, so there's a particular character mm -hmm. um, who has a condition, shall we say. I don't mm -hmm. want to spoil it too much for you because it'll people. I would like people to watch it. There's mm -hmm. some particular element to her character, which will have a we can you know for the fact that they're in the wilderness, will have a major bearing on what happens to her and the rest of the girls. Mm. And you know, I, I didn't really fully expect they would pay that off by the end of a series. I mean, that's probably something you could have waited to the next series to get to. Yeah, but this is one of the elements they've kind of said. Oh, we don't really know what's going to happen about that yet. We've got about ten different ideas we're playing around with of what might happen with that particular character and their condition. And you're like, look, I guess as you sort of said, as you sort of write it, you're, you're sort of saying you evolve, you learn more about them, and you kind of go, you get new ideas about what they might do in a particular situation. But like, I would have thought the major beats should be in place. Yeah, I don't understand uh, from from a uh, from a producer level of it. Just looking at it, it's going okay. Yeah, so pitch me your story. Okay, this is it. So like, all right, cool. You haven't told me the end though. So like, oh yeah, but you know, you, you can give us money. It's, it's great. We'll work it out by by the time we get there. I, I wouldn't invest in that. I was like, okay, cool. Um, I I don't understand this notion as like. Like like Lost, they they said that they always had this plan and it was going to be seven seven series. Like prime example of good quality story writing, whether you actually like its execution or anything. Babylon Five, J. Michael Straczynski, he wrote that with exits and re-entrances for all of the characters in the event that they were there were going to be contract problems or deaths or anything like that. He had these exit plans and re-entry plans, and he always had this idea of where it was going to end up. He didn't know entirely how long he was going to have to tell that story, and he did have to truncate and edit a lot of it for the final season. But he still basically got where he needed to go, and the characters still had their developments. That makes sense to me because as from a studio perspective, he's like, okay, we know where this is going to end. You get season three and its numbers are dropping off. It's like, okay, we need you to wrap this up in two seasons rather than seven, which you had hoped for. Get to it. Versus, all right, lost. Fantastic first season. You've posed all these questions. Where does it go next? It's like, huh? <laughs> we're not going to tell you. It's going to be a surprise for you as it is for the audience and us. I feel like this is how we end up with lost. 
Yes. People making shit up on the fly, or they have a basic outline of a story, mm. and they say, well, we'll colour in the details when we get to it. We'll figure it out. I think a Nick Frost character when he's um in um Shaun of the Dead, and he's like, do you want to practice being a zombie? I'll do it on the night. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, I'll just figure it out when we get to writing that episode. And you're like, and then it's probably, I think they do it myself because they don't know and, either, and they haven't got a good idea yet. And yeah. they just want to make the show because they've got the rest of a thing in place. Now, I'm not saying Yellow Jackets will be like that. And I've kind of really, I think I said last week, I want to hope it doesn't mm. go over lost route and become something like that. Uh, it's so far, it hasn't really. I was just disappointed. And that last episode kind of reeked of, well, yeah, just all set up, just all set up for the next one. And maybe we don't know how this thing ends yet. So we'll just kick the can down the road into season two, which then, I mean, you know, puts the pressure on them. You got to get it right now. You're going to do another season. Yeah. So what they're getting right for me, though, is um, everything that happens in the wilderness could be plausible. Mm. It is grounded. It could legitimately be just what it looks like, you know. Um, it could be where we're, we're a sensible non you know magical um explanations for pretty much everything that's happened mm. um at the same time they are bloody mysterious mm-hmm. um and they may not be they may actually be a super supernatural element at play in all of this um we don't know and that's a nice place to spark to it's a nice place to park your story in in that sort of that valley of um you know uh, unsurety between am i watching the X-Files, because remember when the X-Files started, it was a bit like, oh, well, are there aliens or are they monsters and stuff? We don't know. If you were good episodes in the first few seasons, you're like, well, I don't know. You just sort of just Chris Carter going, you make up your mind. This could be anything. It could be aliens. It could not be aliens. Right. When that yeah. show really started to go down, they just they just completely jumped the shark and went, yeah, there are aliens. And it's a giant conspiracy to breed aliens with humans or whatever the fuck was going on. No. Um, what the actual end result was. Um, so I don't, did anyone make it to the end of that series? I don't know. But like, I think that's when it was at its best. And I think this show is parking itself in that very familiar space of going, it looks mysterious, but if we get to the end and we say, actually, it was all, there was no monsters, there was no ghosts, it was just a bunch of fucked up kids stuck in the wilderness and sh- lots of shit went wrong, you can go, you go back and watch it all again. You go, well, actually, that's legit. Could happen. Yeah. Um. I, and I, I like that because I don't like, you know, my thoughts on fantasy. <laughs> if it just becomes a basic ghost story, it becomes it. I just pull out all the tropes, and, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I yeah, I'm I'm enjoying that of the last episode notably as well. Very interesting director of the last episode, a name we should probably be familiar with. And that's Eduardo Sanchez. Oh. He, of course, directed the uh, horror classic The Blair Witch Project in 1999. So yes. it changed the, the face of horror films forever. Yes. Um, and he, in the last episode, apart from that fact, lack of payoff, it's all working together really well. So that that, that valley of, of well, is this real? Or is, it, is this this magic? Or is it what's going on? Is nice. The mysteries are setting up is cool. And that cast that ensemble cast of mm-hmm. of, of uh actors who are just doing their best work um and you know you see people like christina ricci who's been famous for a long time but you don't see her in a lot of cinema anymore i hope this really kicks her career into another gear because she is playing a character that's a little bit against type for her and mm-hmm. she's wonderful and i also give out shout out to juliet lewis because i'm like 
does she ever get sick of playing like strung out, like burnt out, like drug addict characters? Like that's all she ever seems to play. I haven't. I mean, maybe in real life she's just like the chillest, nicest person. She's like, you know what? I need somewhere to just feel safe to break bad. Pretty much. I, mean, I, I wouldn't put it past her. I mean, I just don't think you don't see her a lot. I haven't seen her in anything new. True. For a very, very, very long time. I'm just looking for a IMDB page here. I haven't seen Gem in the Holograms. Maybe I saw that. I don't remember. Um, no, no, I, I can't remember the last. Whip It was the last thing I reckon I saw with her in it. And that was 2009. Yeah, that was a while ago. She's done other stuff. I just haven't actually seen much of it. Um, so it's kind of cool to see her popping up in something, even if it's playing a stereotypically Juliette Lewis kind of character. At least she does it really well. Yeah, yeah, she sells it well. Uh, I, I would, so despite my negative comments about that payoff at the end, as I said, I seem to be the odd one out. Most people seem to dig it. Um, so if you've got Paramount Plus, are you the one who has Paramount Plus? Because who else has it? Like, who's paying for this? Um, you know, then this is, I would put this at the top of my to-watch list when the kids have gone to bed. <laughs> It is available via Amazon Prime, but again, you have to pay for a for a Paramount Plus membership. In fact, I would probably just say take the three week mm -hmm. and just binge it, then don't renew it because there's nothing else. Not really, yeah. All right. I'm just going to quickly finish off, if I may, with my very brief um, thoughts on Monster Hunter because oh. why not? Why not? Why the fuck? I tried to watch this last year and I made it about half an hour in. Yeah. I had to watch it in three sittings. Um I did not like it at any point. It tries to be um there's an element of the storytelling that would have been really cool if they had fully invested in it, where Mila Jovovich's character, Artemis, and her platoon, um mysteriously get teleported to this unknown desert see and are immediately accosted by this ridiculously oversized giant humongous monster and are basically entirely wiped out except for her she manages to survive she comes across uh, the the resident of this land uh just referred to as hunter played by tony ja who um sprung to fame with his um muay thai skills in ong bak a few years ago um but um they try to kind of put an element of 127 hours into this, which would have been really fucking cool if they had to put this multi-dimensional someone coming from Earth going to this other this other environment. Then sure, have her just randomly drop in, but it spend far too much time building up this faux camaraderie with all of her uh, platoon members that go by such names as Lincoln Marshall. Dash, Steeler, and Axe. They are literally taken from the Michael Bay book of naming. Um, don't care. They, none of them fucking survive except Artemis. Spoilers, I guess, but who fucking cares? You're not watching this for the soldiers. You're watching this for the monsters. It's called Monster Hunter, and it's a typical movie where they went, oh, yeah, very popular franchise. Let's turn it into a movie and change basically everything about it. If they had just gone, okay, this is Artemis learning to survive, cool. And there's elements where it's like, all right, that's fine. 
The monsters look fine. The acting between Miljovic and Tali Jar is bad. Miljovic has had her moment where she could have been a strong female leading actress with possibility. And she is now very, very happy and taking a paycheck um, and still fighting, but not, she doesn't sell a fight, a punch like she used to. Um, and it just looks a bit tired, which is fair. You know, she's getting older and why not? But maybe don't sign up to do your husband's movies because he makes schlock. Um, Tony Jar, not an actor. And instead of letting him do actual fighting, which he is trained at and is good at, it's like, oh, no, we're going to give you this oversized bow and arrow because that's what's in the movie. It's like, okay, you're making references here and here to, to the source material, but you're throwing everything else out, and it ends up looking like a weird Super Mario movie, but somehow more offensive. Um, and Ron, <laughs> Ron Perlman turns up in it as the Admiral, and mysteriously just because they get to a point where it's like oh fuck we need to explain shit of this world but everyone speaks a different language than Mili Jovovich doesn't understand ah yes he found someone who also fell through the portal and studied English how convenient fantastic oh he's gone all right um and then it's like yes we're going to attack this tower it's like wow that suddenly came about and then it more or less ends after a climactic, boring fight. And yeah, don't watch this. I, I watched, like I said, half an hour and I was painfully bored. It was just, you're right. Paul W.S. Anderson is a terrible writer. Mm -hmm. He is a terrible director. Mm -hmm. His next film is based on a George R.R. R. Martin story, of all things, believe it or not. Okay. And then have Dave Batista in it, which is interesting. Dave slumming it. Um, the only decent thing he's ever done, I would say, is probably Event Horizon. Great. Um, I did like the first Resident Evil film okay, but it probably was just not that great anyway. But, I mean, it yeah. was okay. Event Horizon, that was good, though. Yeah. Um, not to, but any original Mortal Kombat, eh, but he's terrible. This is a fucking awful movie. Yeah. And he's kind of like, I, I know I've been on the bandwagon for the last eight years that video game films mm -hmm. will become what comic book films are today. Not if they're consistently given to him. But it, it, they, I don't understand why they adapt the wrong films, like yeah. the wrong games. Like, I haven't, I think I've seen, I've never played Monster Hunter, but I, I've seen what it's about. It never struck me as a game with a particularly strong storyline, but it, that, that would, you know stand yeah. up to being adopted adapted into a film it's like when they make mortal Kombat films it never it's a, it's a popular game but it never really screened out for a film no you know um but maybe we'll get there we've got i think um that tom holland one coming out later this year um no that that i can smell the shit on that already my friend uncharted that's the one yeah yeah that is that i can smell a million miles away and I really don't want to go and watch that at the movies, but I have to put my money where my mouth is and say that I watch these things so other people don't have to. Or maybe it'll be The Last of Us. I think that film's happening. Um, uh, that's a TV show. TV show now. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that's 
being given like apparently it's got the most expensive per but per episode budget of tv so they're putting a lot of effort into this one one of the big whiffy parts of uncharted for me is big old marky mark he has his moments yeah but he hasn't had a moment for a while and he's playing the character of sully which he's it's, it's, He's not Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> He's just not. That's like going, oh, yeah, you know who would be a fantastic person to portray Gandalf? Justin Bieber. <laughs> okay. It's, it's just wrong. I <laughs> uh, haven't played it. So um, I, I did play, sorry, uh, no, I haven't played Uncharted at all. So I, I can't comment mm. um, on that. Maybe it'll be Borderlands. What an odd little cast that is. Kate Blanchett and Jack Black and um Directed very, by Eli Roth. Um okay. weird. Super yeah. maybe that'd be the one. I don't know. We it hasn't really happened yet because we have only had those weird kitty films like Sonic and Pokemon that have yeah. Angry Birds that have kind of really made money, but you mm-hmm. need a serious moneymaker to kind of hit that you start, if one of them hits that Marvel money. One of them lands in that space, and maybe we'll start talking about them being the thing. But Monster Hunter is not it. No, and I will spend no more time talking about it. And that is a good place to end. And because we have gone longer again for over two hours for a short show. Yes, we uh, we we know how to talk, and we also don't really know how to stop. But thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us this week. Uh, just to sum up the show, we talked about our chain movie of the week, Explorers. The next link in the chain is going to be my own private Idaho, picked by the talent himself, Travis Croft. We talked about the latest, uh, well, the near latest episode of Peacemaker. Still in love with that. We had our sponsor of Rollerblade Warriors in Russian. Um, we uh, talked about the merger, the um, the Aussie movie. We talked about um, Guy Ritchie's latest Wrath of Man. Travis finished up season one of Yellow Jacket, and I just lit a fire under Monster Hunter. <laughs> and he deserved so, it. Yes. So we've got my own private hi- Idaho next week. We'll probably be talking more Peacemaker. We'll probably talk a little bit of Boba Fett if we both get round to it. Um, I've got a couple of other things that I'm hoping that I'll be able to talk about. The big one for me next week, I will talk about The Legend of Vox Machina. Um, I'm not talking about it now because I don't want to spoil it for anyone. And I want Travis to be able to at least watch one episode. Um, and that comes out this Friday on Amazon. Amazon, yes. So that is all I have to say on that. Well, and that I should say good night to everyone. Good night and see you next week. Good night.